Hey guys, welcome to the I Love This Shit podcast. Today is my very first interview in life on the podcast with the one and only Keelan Patrick Burke. Guys, we spent two hours, I kid you not, two hours talking about so many different things. It was so much fun. I can't thank him enough. This was definitely went so much better than I was expecting, especially being this is my first time ever interviewing or talking to anybody of this sort like this. It was great. I really hope you guys enjoy it. This is just a quick little intro to let you guys know what you're in for. Really hope you guys like it. Leave me all the comments. Let me know if you like it. I love this pod on Instagram. I love this pod at gmail.com. I love this pod.com. You guys know where to go do everything. So go do it. Here's the interview. I'm going to jump right into it. Guys, have a good day. Enjoy the interview. Yeah, so let's, I guess we can get this thing going. I'm going to, I wrote down some questions, but I'm going to try to use them as just more of guidelines you know so and uh and apologies in advance if i stop and like recollect myself and just you know it's no problem at all i might have to do the same myself all right good um (laughs) all right so let's start off with the usual uh interview question which is you know where were you born tell me about all that i don't know (coughs) that's my answer next (laughs) (laughs) well all right Uh, moving on I don't know. It, they find it hard to uh, to track the the moving patterns of wolves these days. So I'm not I'm not really sure where my parents are, who they were. <laughs> but uh, no, the, the 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 obvious answer, I guess, is Ireland. But it's um, a small uh, coastal town down south called Dungarvan. Mm. Uh, I've written about it a couple of times. It's kind of hard not to. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, simpler times. I was, you know born to Catholic parents and raised in a Catholic country and I wish that said that uh you know that, that was an indicator that I was able to watch my P's and Q's but now it's the exact opposite. I've been I've been a, a nightmare of a person ever since then, so it's entirely their fault. Oh man. Are are you a, are you an only child? Uh no, I have a younger brother. He's six years younger than me. Oh same uh, well I have an older brother, he's six years older. Yeah. He's the kid they like. <laughs> that's 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 usually what I say. Yeah, exactly. He's the good one. I'm, you know, there's there's only there's only enough room for one good and one evil in one family. So, <laughs> um, yeah. How was so? How was you know home life with you know the you and the old, uh, younger brother? It was good. I mean, the the thing I kind of regret is that there was um, enough distance in age between us that by the time I was sixteen and a troublemaker, I just I moved out of home. I was like, screw this. I'm gonna go join a rock band or the circus or something. Oh man. And, uh, and I just left. And, you know, at the time, well, of course, as everyone knows, when you're 16, the only thing you really care about is yourself. Yeah. So I went, you know, living the, the life of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And uh, I kind of it was only as when I got older that I started to realize that I left my brother there. And I was like, he wasn't in any danger or anything. He'd fine life. But I missed all those years of being able to connect with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, as an older kid and. We talk about that a lot. We're we're great. We're very close now, and we talk about it. He's still in Ireland, but we uh, we talk a lot about 
those years and how it was a different experience for both of us and you know we're kind of making up for lost time but still I do I do get pangs of guilt over being so you know selfish and running out in pursuit of my own dreams and everything which I suppose is natural it just doesn't often happen when you're 16 I guess yeah I was gonna say and you know like you said you were you were 16 and that's just that's what 16 year olds do they rebel yeah they're assholes <laughs> that's, that's that's definitely an appropriate way to put it <laughs> well I was I don't want to speak for them all and I think these days that you know the youth has uh, a very different perspective on things and I guess if I'd have been able to look up the internet and see all the ways in which things can go wrong or can go right and oh, all yeah. the opportunities it would change the way I grew up it would change direction but I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm as guilty as I am proud of the fact too that I grew up in that time where I could basically the only way to learn shit was to throw yourself headfirst into it rather than being able to research everything. Yeah. I, I feel like you, you learn a little more because you, you know, with the internet, you look up specific things. Whereas, you know, if you have to go out and explore, you're finding things you weren't thinking of before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I do like that. You know I mean? Back then, I think it was probably the last generation to be educated by just life and not necessarily it's, kind of digital instruction manual oh yeah definitely was anyone in uh in your family readers or writers oh yeah um my mom was a huge horror fan she still is but uh, when i grew up there was always books around the house she had me reading as soon as i knew how to use my eyes but uh, uh she used to send me to the library and gave me her ticket ostensibly to get books for her from the adult section thrillers stephen king james herbert all that kind of stuff but i was to get those books for her and use my junior card or whatever the hell it was called to get young adult stuff for myself which i would but it was all very it was all a ruse because by the time i got home or when i got home we would sit there and then decide which of the stephen king books i could read which she was gonna read and then We'd trade them off when we were done. I, I wish I wish my mom and I would have done that because she's her her favorite author is Stephen King. I think she told me uh, she was a teenager when The Stand came out and she read that. Uh, I think she said over the weekend, which to me is just insane. Uh, yeah. Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it took me almost all of January to read that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I don't recall her ever reading those, but. She would read them and then decide whether or not it was appropriate, which is yeah. funny to me now because when I think back of it, the only one I, I remember her telling me I couldn't read was Pet Cemetery. Mm. So she stuck it in her drawer, and I waited until she was gone to work, and I snuck it out of her drawer. And oh, I was, in the, it's like one of those Hollywood scenes. I was under the covers with the flashlight, just <laughs> you know, reading it at night and terrifying myself with the shadows on the walls, but. It's funny because I think I only get that now too. It's so much makes sense in retrospect, but I think it was more the themes she was worried about, not any you know cursing or nudity or violence. It was the the themes, how dark oh, they yeah. were in that particular book. That I think that's what she was worried about. Definitely, that's very grim subject matter to say the least. Yeah, yeah, but and it's you know I can't really say objectively, of course, whether it had any lasting impact. But I remember loving that book and. Loving being scared by it. Is it safe to assume that's your favorite Stephen King book? 
No, I wouldn't. I have a, a soft spot for it. It's a great book. I have a soft spot for it because I think, and it's of course it's hard to really pinpoint it, but I think that of the elements that made me decide to have this career and in this genre in particular, that played a, a, a large role, primarily because it's one the earliest I can recall being so thrilled being scared not you know not terrified like oh my god what am i gonna do yeah but it's being so intoxicated by the experience of fear that i knew i wanted to do that for other people i knew i wanted to write stories that would give somebody else that giggly little nervous thrill and go oh this is fun oh yeah definitely so i do love that one i don't know how to really pinpoint a, a favorite stephen king book because there's so many of them i really enjoy um, the usual fare, you know, you'd say It or The Shining or Salem's Lot. Oh, yeah. But, uh, so I don't know if I have a favorite. I, I think by virtue of the amount of books he's written that I enjoy, he would have to be one of my favorite authors. Um, but I, I find it impossible to, to pick one that I think is is my favorite because there's probably ten of them that are. Yeah, definitely. That's It's like any time someone says, oh, you know, rank your... Uh rank the Dark Tower novels, it's like, you ask me two hours later, it's going to be a totally different order. Yeah. Do you know I haven't finished reading those? I only started trying to read them. Because when I was growing up and those were coming out, I always thought, eh, sword and sorcery. I just assumed, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not into any of this. But I only started reading them a few years back, a few years ago, and I'm up to Wizards and Glass now. Oh, man. That, yeah, I know a lot of people were turned off by that one because of the whole backstory thing, but... Yeah, and as much as I would, you know, love the first three, I did want to progress, but I also wanted to know, you know, all the backstory and stuff. And yeah. the first time around, I was like, okay, it was good, but I definitely want to keep moving forward. But then I reread the first four again, and I was just like, holy shit, this is definitely up there in like the top three. Now, without ruining anything, because I do intend to read them, mm-hmm. um, an awful lot of people that I've spoken to about it, including a good friend of mine, has who loves King and he loves. Uh, a certain number of the Dark Tower books, but he and many other people I've spoken to have said that it tends to get worse after Wizards and Glass. Is that what would you agree with that? I I, I I wouldn't necessarily say worse. It's he did start five, six, and seven um, after his whole you know getting hit by the van accident and all that. So I noticed a, a tonal shift. Um, and the only one I can say I didn't really care for would be the sixth book, because to me that's kind of a in-between, you know, the, it's just kind of, it's, it was basically not not a filler book, but a setup novel, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, maybe it's just because the first four were so fantastical, and the, the last three kind of, they do have that fantastical element, but just like I said, the, the tonal shift, uh, I think, was a little jarring for people, probably. What did you think of the movie? oh god i don't think of it <laughs> yeah I, you know what I, I was one of those people that because i hadn't read the entire series i wasn't quite as um invested in it and i thought too that i'm not going to get and i try to avoid it all possible getting on this absolute insane fanboy thing where they just absolutely hate something to a psychotic degree yeah so i separated myself from that and i said you know what i'm going to sit down and just watch this uh without having finished the series of books and just see what I think of it just as a movie. Forget that there's any connection to anything literary. 
Oh Jesus, it was awful. Yeah, see that that's what I was telling people. I was like, okay, not not looking at it as a uh, a fan of the novels and all that. I'll just look at it as a movie, and I'm like, even so, this is like a very bad B movie. That's it. Yeah, I mean, forget the connections to anything. Just as a movie taken on its own merits, it's just not good. You've got a load of talented people who really seem bored. Yeah. And the script makes no sense. It's all rushed. It's uh, you're, you don't have time to care about anyone. You don't have time to care about the predicaments they're in. And I think it was a shame because I think that um, that the casting was pretty stellar, and I was really, really excited when I heard. Yeah, definitely. How they had cast, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I remember, you know. Well, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, um, the ending to me was like such a like back to the future type ending it was a it was a oh hey do you want to do you want to come with me yeah sure let's go walk into a building and a bright light flashes and then up comes this triumphant music and it's like what the hell was that <laughs> all you needed was a doc to be looking out the window Great oh, yeah exactly <laughs> oh man oh. i i meant to ask this uh I meant to ask this a little while back, but when when did you move to um, America? At uh, two thousand and one, it was about uh, two weeks before nine eleven. Oh man, what a what a welcome wagon that was! Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's you know <clears throat> it, it kind of guaranteed that I'd never forget the circumstances surrounding my decision to move. You know, I just thought that Ireland was in not in a great place economically and. I was just bouncing from, I, I graduated in journalism and I, I thought, I had a head full of dreams and I thought, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm even going to be wearing the fedora with press sticking out of it, going up and <laughs> taking flashbulb pictures of people going, ah, there's the scoop. Yeah. But uh, it didn't work out that way. There was no, there was no jobs. And, you know, I ended up writing stories on the back of napkins while tending bar for oh, chronic amounts of hours. And when I wasn't, tending bar I was drinking on the other side of it in my pursuit to become uh, become Bukowski only a shittier version <laughs> yeah. so uh, <laughs> yeah that's the insult so um, <laughs> so yeah I, I uh, had the opportunity to come here and just you know try out life here for a while and I did and then within two weeks I'm being woken up to watch planes hitting skyscrapers and I thought Jesus Christ yeah you know, I mean, it was interesting, like, obviously, the probably the worst thing I've ever seen happen in my entire life, and it it made the world seem really small, which was strange, because for the two weeks leading up to that, I found it difficult, coming from a, a country that's an island where you can drive from the south to the north in about eight hours, mm, I, yeah. the immensity of this country, like, the scope of it just was kind of hard for me to take in and kind of hard to reconcile and all of a sudden this tragedy happens and I'm looking at it and I, I started to feel like the world had basically shrunk to a very small and dangerous place oh but yeah it was, definitely it was crazy I mean my initial impression was that I was watching a movie and I couldn't understand why I was being woken up with such urgency to watch a Michael Bay movie or something yeah you know? I I remember I was in um I was in middle school and I woke up and I usually put on, it's funny, I was in middle school, but I still watched Magic School Bus just because that's what was on in the morning. And so I woke up, you know, I always had just had it on in the background as I'm getting ready and I turned it on and 
not paying attention. I just saw that the news was on. I was like, oh man, I want to watch the news, change the channel. Same thing. I was like, I was like, damn, apparently the news is on everything right now. And I went to a different channel, same thing. And it was all the same shot. And I was like, maybe I should, you know, see what's going on. And as I sat down to watch what was going on was when the second one hit and just, you know, blew my mind. Like, like, wow, you're, this is something out of a movie when someone turns on the TV and it's the same thing on every channel because something extremely terrible is happening. Yeah, it's unfortunate that I think nowadays we've had to grow accustomed to seeing things happening on TV that we just are to hear about them that we always kind of arrogantly assumed happened everywhere else, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was growing up, we had drills in school. We were told, you know bomb drills because the IRA were threatening uh, because of statements made by the government in the Republic that they were going to come down and start blowing the shit out of us as well. Oh, so, and it was just, it became second nature. You just thought, oh, come in here, yeah, do your drills. This is what happens in the case that uh, terrorists walk in the door. And I go, okay. So we kind of, you know, it just became part of what it was to be Irish was that, you know, the North is going to blow itself to fucking pieces and you're just don't get too complacent down south because just because you're not involved doesn't mean that you will be. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it was crazy. And then when I came here, I, I don't know if I had this assumption that, well, nothing ever happens in America. It's <laughs> the land of the free and the brave and all this shit. And then I go all right, and then within two weeks saw that, and I thought, yeah, it's nothing is safe. I was going to say, yeah, nowhere you go is safe. No, no, it's not. And I mean, it just, I don't know if it's a matter of perspective or what but it does seem in the past couple of years like it's just escalating to some type of fucking boiling point i don't know oh god yeah unfortunately yeah uh i I remember oh man how old or how long ago was it i think it was in like 1997 my grandma flew my brother and i out to ireland to visit my aunt because she she likes to move around a lot she lived in new mexico for a little while and then she moved out to i believe it was dublin um Wow. I might be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Dublin. Um, so we went out and visited her for a good couple of weeks. And I just thought it was funny that, you know, even at however old I was, nine, 10 years old, I always heard about how, you know, rainy and green it is there and all that. And yeah. then step off the plane. And as soon as I step off, just water bottle sized droplets of rain hitting me as soon as I get off that airplane. The Irish welcome. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I think we saw the sun two days while we were there for those almost two weeks. When did you go? Uh, we went in, I believe it was in July of 1997. Yeah. I don't know if it's climate change or what, but the last couple of times I've gone home has have been uh, between, usually around May, I think, and between May and July. But uh, every time I've gone home, I'd say if I go for two weeks, I get probably... 11 days of absolute glorious sunshine, then it rains the rest of it. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, and I mean, it's, you know, it, it might, you might have an absolute beautiful day, might be 70 degrees, and then you'll get just an hour of rain just to cool things off. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's like, don't, don't get comfortable. <laughs> Anytime I bring up the story of going to Ireland, too, I always have to mention that I think it was the first day we were there, we went to a mall, and... A really cool little mall too. Like I can't tell you what it was called or anything, but I, I remember finding a comic book shop and 
um, I was a really big uh, Spawn fan at that time, and I found a really cool uh, Spawn graphic novel, and that's all I did that whole time I was there at my aunt's house was just read that graphic novel over and over again. And the day we go to leave, I can't find it. We She had a tiny little house. We tore that house upside down, could not find it, and still to this day, it pisses me off that I never found it, nor do I remember enough about it to try to seek it out again. Leprechaun probably stole it. Yeah, yeah I was, you know, I was like, damn, they do really have leprechauns here, don't they? <laughs> they do. I mean, well, no, they don't, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's amazing how many people I've met over here who said, so, you know, I get asked some absolutely insane questions. Uh, not but you know, not by readers, but when I, when I go out, or if I'm at a restaurant, or if I meet up with people from out of town, it's this kind of looking at you like, because you're Irish, you're somehow really different. You know, yeah. When we're all fundamentally the same, but they'll uh, <laughs> they'll ask me questions like, "Do you guys, you know, do you guys still use horse and carts to get around over there?" <laughs> no, 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 we don't. Ah, you guys have jukeboxes, like we do, yeah. Um, and another one was, "So, what's the deal with leprechauns?" <laughs> oh God, what's the deal? What do you mean? So, like, you know, are they real or? <laughs> And I said, well, we used to have them, but, you know, we rounded them all up and put them in cages, and now you just have to pay exorbitant amounts to get to see them. <laughs> just, oh, really? Oh, that's crazy, man. They should be left to run around the place freely. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> we gathered them all up, and, you know, now they make cereal for us. They do, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like, they have to be kept in captivity, otherwise they're cannibals, and, you know, it, it's just <laughs> not worth it. It's not worth it just to see them in their natural... Uh, Natural feeding grounds. Yeah, I I remember in elementary school on, you know, on good old St. Patrick's Day they would have we'd walk into the classroom and they would have, um, like the chairs dumped over and there would be like little handprints on the, on the chalkboard and they'd put little chalk, like outlines of feet on the ground and I'm just like, okay I'm a kid and I get this is for us but what the hell. <laughs> But it's crazy. See that, and that's another thing. You know, people say in this current climate where everything is a cause for outrage, every single thing is a cause for somebody to be upset about it. Oh, God, I get yeah. asked. Yeah, I get asked a lot. You know, about oh, so do you celebrate St. Patrick's Day over here? Because I'm sure it's very offensive. And <laughs> honestly, I don't care. I. I I've had so many different experiences over here on St. Patrick's Day where, you know, people uninformed about what what Ireland is and what the Irish are. I mean, I get questions like, is Ireland in France? I was oh, legitimately God. asked that once. <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't phase me, it doesn't bother me, and I don't form judgments on the people who ask those questions because... America is huge, you know, and as we can see, there has been a, a, a very, um, a tendency for isolationism and people just don't really either care or know very much about what happens outside the borders of it. And that's understandable, I guess. I didn't know a lot about the world until I traveled it, but it doesn't, yeah, definitely. it doesn't bother me. I mean, it's like, you know, I don't care at all basically about it and, People talking about leprechauns and everything. Oh, that must make you so mad. I don't give a shit. I really don't. <laughs> there are greater concerns than to be tying myself in knots over the stupidest of things. Yeah, exactly. Just 
Yeah, just kind of brush it off. Like, oh, like you said, you know, just make a, <laughs> just make a nice little comment about it and just keep moving. Yeah, and I like that guy who asked me about the jukebox. He said, you know, you guys have jukeboxes in Ireland. And I said, no, are you kidding me? I said, we hear Dolby Surround, we think we're being invaded again. <laughs> oh, man. Just, just, kind of just I, I just don't get where some people come up even with those questions. Like, it's I don't know, it's almost like the flat earther thing. It's like, are you really that, that dumb? Do you really believe that? Well, yeah, and a lot of it comes from, you know, from their exposure to, like, I, I think a lot of it on, on Patrick's Day is when people say things that they get based on the only Irish things they've been exposed to, and that tends to be in movies or on TV, you know, Thank You Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, Far and Away, and yeah. Darby O'Gill and the Little People, and they just assume that we basically spend our days doing a... Uh, dances around a pot of gold with a bunch of drunken leprechauns you know and which eating, eating me, a bunch of baked potatoes yeah exactly yeah which to me is absolutely hilarious and you know you can't really rail against people who say ah oh, you're a bunch of potato eaters because we are potato eaters yeah i fucking love potatoes i'm with you on that one yeah and you're all a bunch of drunks over there with the irony being it's being said by a drunk guy but <laughs> he's not entirely wrong there either you know yeah. i mean we are a bunch of hardcore drinking, fighting, foul-mouthed bunch of fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I, I really loved when I was there because, you know, n- nobody gave a shit that I was a kid. They were just, you know, letting F-words fly left and right. And I don't know, oh. I just thought it was really cool. I was like, all right, I, I dig this. This is this is pretty cool. Definitely some free spirits here, to say the least. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, too, like, that if you really want to really wanted to discuss like what Ireland is it is in many ways the same as any place else I mean we have a great culture over there there's some of the finest colleges in the world like Trinity College University College it's it's an amazing place we've got ancient architecture it's beautiful I'd advise everybody to go see it at least once but no culture can be defined by its stereotypes nor should it be you know yeah definitely Uh, will you will you find drunken fight and foul-mouthed Irishmen yes you will uh, will you find, you know, uh, people who believe in superstition and fairies and leprechauns in Ireland in the rural areas? Yes, you will. So, I mean, none of them are, are particularly wrong, but it's a mistake, I think, to reduce it to that because it's so much more to offer than just, a, you know, a country that bred superstition and little else. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> I, I definitely want to want to go back there because I feel like I didn't get to appreciate it as much as I could have considering I was only nine or ten years old at the time. Still amazing that you went though at, at that age. I mean, there's no, I don't think there there's m- much better than to give a child a gift that you give a child than to travel, and especially to outside your own country's borders to get to show them the world. You know. Yeah, it, it's funny because people have you know asked me like, oh, how far have you, uh, how far have you traveled? I'm like, well, in the United States, I've only ever been to obviously California because it's where I'm from and I've been to Oregon, Washington and the furthest away I've been is New Mexico but I have been to Ireland and London and everyone's just like you've been to Ireland and London but you haven't been any further east of the country than New Mexico it's like yep that's how it goes <laughs> oh it's crazy I, I think I've been here but now I, I, I suck at math but <laughs> it's what is it now 2018 so it I've is. been 17 years yeah and in that time, I could count on two hands, probably, the amount of people that I have met who have never been outside the borders of this state. Oh, man. And, and it, it, that kind of tells me, really, 
it helps explain why people have such a narrow view or a limited view of other places is because they haven't seen them. I mean, if you haven't if you haven't gone from beyond the borders of Ohio and even gone to Florida in the winter, or you haven't gone to Michigan or Pennsylvania, I can't really expect you to know much about the governing body in Norway or the the troubles in Ireland. Like you know, it's. I think it's an unfair expectation, really. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, you live in a pretty small state, don't you? Yeah, Ohio. Yeah, see, I mean, you can easily reach any of your bordering states pretty quickly, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly, by accident. If I'd been walking home drunk some night, I could have ended up in Michigan. <laughs> oh, man, I'm pretty sure you'd be able to tell the difference, too. Yeah, well, that's the thing, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that, you know, for all that these states have to offer, it is very similar geographically so one of the best things i did was take a road trip out west uh, no plan nothing just got in the car and went and i think it took two and a half weeks went all the way out to california all the way back down up to texas or across through texas and oklahoma and back into ohio and it was stopping whenever i felt like it doing whatever i felt staying in these shitty motels it was fantastic yeah see that's what and see a lot of people always talk about that i remember my friends talking about that in uh, high school. They were like, oh, after we graduate, let's all pitch in on a Winnebago and go over America. And it's like, okay, yeah, that sounds like fun, but it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> Logistically speaking, it's a bit of a nightmare. And, you know, I was in debt up to my eyeballs after doing it, but I would do it again. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, as much as you look at it as, like me, I hate, I, I hate traveling so much as just the routine of traveling, of the packing shit up and going through... <laughs> Like, even, like, with flying, going through the airports. Like, you know, if I could just walk outside down the street and be at my destination, I'd be happy. Like, I want to see places, but the routine of it is just a pain in the ass. Exactly. That's what I say a lot of people ask me if I'm afraid of flying. I say, I have no problem with flying. I'm afraid of airports. Exactly. You know, and I don't know what it is. I get so apprehensive. And, I mean, Jesus, if I was apprehensive before, I don't know what I'm going to be like now. Because, you know, (laughs) we're getting the Irish government is warning Irish legal residents of america to make sure they have all their paperwork now because if you go through customs or you're going through security at american airports you will probably be selected for questioning oh man and you know what i just hate the whole process of it i hate the invasiveness of it i hate the fact that the minute you stand in line you're looked at like you are potentially potentially a criminal yeah and, I mean, I'm a pasty white guy who shaves his head. I just look like a neo-Nazi from the <laughs> game, you know? Are, are you uh, are you a legal, not legal, yeah. I mean, a, a citizen, I should say, of U.S.? No, a permanent resident. I have my green card and all that junk. But, you know, I used to think that that was enough. And, I mean, that's all that's required, really. But, uh, yeah, nowadays, it's hard to say. I could be shipped off tomorrow, which would actually not be a bad thing because I've been thinking of moving back there anyway. All so right. somebody else wants to just stick me on a plane for free in the cargo hold with all the chickens, I'm more than willing to go. <laughs> You're like, hey, well, you know, you just paid my airfare. I'm good now. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's been the thing that keeps me from going back home a lot anyway is the expense of it. So if you want to you bite that tab for me and just fire me into the hold, I'm off. <laughs> I, I remember... Um, uh, I used to watch um, the Late Show with uh, Craig Ferguson, yeah. and he he was talking about one episode. You know, like when he moved here, he thought, you know, like oh hey, I've got my uh, I've got my green card and all that. Like you know, I should be good. And then he realized he was 
going to live here. And he more or less, you know, had to get his citizenship. And he, I thought it was cool that he recorded him uh, getting his citizenship, which was, I've never, I'd never seen how that goes about. And he said, basically, you just take a test and then you have everybody stand in a room and say the Pledge of Allegiance and then you're a citizen. Yeah, you know what, that was interesting for me when I came here first. And I got married here as well, so that's, you know, that kind of, to an American, so that was, that expedited everything. And Oh, yeah. But it was funny because we spent two weeks rehearsing everything we knew about each other. And just to make sure we didn't flub any questions during the interview. <laughs> and I was just, no amount of deodorant could keep the sweat from under <laughs> Oh, man. I I was in a suit. I had shaved. I was looking my absolute best, apart from being stark white with terror. (laughs) And we went in, and they asked none of the questions. I mean, 10 minutes before that, we're in the car going downtown, and she's asking me pop questions about what kind of shampoo she uses. And we get in there, and he sits down, looks at me, and just went, all right, signed the thing and held up his hand to give him the Pledge of Allegiance. And... My wife looks at me and she's there, wow, we did it, we made it. And I look back at the guy who's holding up his Pam for the Pledge of Allegiance and I high-fived him. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that's what he was doing. And I was like, oh, yay. And he turns, he rolled his eyes and turned to my wife (laughs) with his hand held up and out of sheer nerves, she did the same thing. Oh, man. She high-fived him and he just looked like there are no stupider people on the face of the planet right now these two goons in my office and guaranteed that guy was probably just thinking like oh damn foreigners yeah oh probably and then he said okay well you know whatever uh let's do the pledge of allegiance now (laughs) and we got out of there everything was great so you know uh cut to a decade later and we had a an amicable divorce it was you know we're still friends everything was great but i was then wondering okay well we're not married anymore. Do I need to check in with the immigration people and make sure that I'm still legal, that everything's cool? And I got all nervous all over again. So I got my paperwork, got everything together, got my green card, went into the office, and it was the same guy. Oh, wow. Exact same guy. And he looked up. I mean, this time he was behind, a, instead of sitting in an office, he was behind a, a pane of protective glass with a slot in the bottom of it and I walked up and I was shaking I thought this is it they're just gonna send me home and he took my papers and without even looking at him he looked right at me and he says oh it's the high five guy (laughs) (laughs) and he just stamped the thing signed it held it back to me and said you're good oh wow you'll get some mail in a few weeks and I was thrilled of course I was delighted I came home I was like yay but all I could think of then in the coming days was, can you imagine if I wasn't white? Mm. You know, yeah, and I definitely. go in, and it's the exact same scenario. He, we met him in the beginning, everything was cool, he remembered me, and I don't know, I was just, I guess, and you know, it's what they, they accurately refer to as white privilege. I think it was all, ha, ah, there was the guy. Yeah, exactly. When for all he knew, I could be a terrorist. That's true. You know, it's just, I don't know, I, it, it it bugs me now. Everything does, so I just shut the hell up about it, though. Yeah, that, it's just funny, because that whole, that whole story almost sounds like a, uh, I guess, I guess basically like a romantic comedy or a sitcom episode, the whole, you know, you, 
trying to get legalized and then you guys meet rehearsing everything about each other and then finally at the end just yeah high five the guy exactly it sounds like something out of romantic comedy unless you change the color of my skin and then it becomes a horror story it becomes like the movie get out yeah yeah exactly and you know that that kind of stuck with me the the two things that stuck with me were the the initial absolute relief of it oh thank christ i'm not going to be deported yeah and then very soon after that i started thinking about well why is it that easy for me you know he, he didn't even ask me any questions he doesn't know he didn't check anything for all he knows i could have been arrested nine times since he last saw me i could be a domestic terrorist i could be a fucking incel i could be any of these things but ah doesn't matter you're the guy who high-fived me welcome to the <laughs> oh man that's i i mean i want to say like that's america for you just be like oh yeah i remember that guy he did the high-five he's good with me <laughs> yeah and i mean you know what it's it's for me benefiting from it obviously it's a good thing i wouldn't want it to be different for me particularly but at the same time and there's a lot of great in this country and if there wasn't i wouldn't still be here there's a lot of an amazing amazing people and if anything the last couple of years have shown how quick we are to stand up for the things that are just right oh yeah and, and how quickly we will come together in defense of somebody who needs it or to support somebody who needs it but it's not enough and i don't think it's ever going to be enough because no matter how noble you might think a cause is or how much you do for it, you're still you. And it can be awkward to be put in a situation where you're being asked to acknowledge your privilege when you're not educated enough to know what that privilege is in the first place. Yeah. You know, and that's something I came to realize very quickly too, was that when somebody said to me, you benefit from white privilege, I immediately got inwardly defensive saying, well, I've had a hard time too. But I don't, that's the wrong way of looking at it. That's not what it refers to. It, it, it's referring to the fact that be, by virtue of being white, you are having an easier time of it. Yeah. And it's because you're not educated enough on what the opposite of that is to really have a, a good enough frame of reference to be offended by it. And, you know, like there was no uh, so-called oppression for you, I guess, in a way. No. No, not not even remotely. I mean, you know, people, a lot of Irish people who live in America will say, well, you know, when Irish immigrants came to Ellis Island, they were subjected to racism afterwards and were, you know, the whole signs in New York windows saying no dogs, no Irish people, no blacks or whatever the order was. It was all bad. But, yeah. uh, you know, and there was definitely prejudice. But, I mean... Yeah, it sucked, but we we can't use that as well. We went through that too. Yeah, we were not treated that bad. We, you know, it was bad for the t- for the people at the time, but it's not it's not an equivalency that works, I believe. No, definitely not. But anyway, Jesus, what are we what are we doing here? This is like I <laughs> I, I feel like a, a radio guest who came in to support my run for Congress. Jesus. <laughs> But see, that's that, that's what I was going towards. I was going towards, well, I'll ask one question, and we'll see where it goes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, God, we got heavy really quickly. I was say, and here we are, like almost 40 minutes later. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I'm, no. That's I'm not known for uh, my brevity. It's, it's exactly, what, uh, exactly what I was wanting. Well, uh, and that's the, that's the problem with me, though, is that, you know, I have the same problem with, uh, it, uh, I, you know, I never know when to shut up, and the biggest problem that people have with my books is they're never long enough. You would think that the one would, like, facilitate the other. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
Okay, so speaking of which, um, you know, when did you want to pursue writing as your career? Like, this is what I want to do. Honestly, it, it seems like a, it seems like an easy or, or romantic answer to say it, but it, honestly, as far as I can tell, it's the truth. It's that always. Mm-hmm. I remember a brief period when uh, when I was really really young, like probably seven or eight, where I wanted to be Matlock. Oh man! I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be him. Yeah. It might have had something to do with the suits. I, I don't know, but I I just wanted every week of my life to be an episode of his. And then I, I started watching um, Ironside and, uh, oh shit, what is it, Raymond Burr, Perry Mason. Oh, okay. And then I started realizing that the common theme was that, yes, I did actually want to become a lawyer. I was seven. <laughs> oh, man. I was seven years of age and I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. And only because I wanted to be clever enough to catch people out in their lies, you know? Yeah. And then I wanted to be a fireman, and then an archaeologist, and then an astronaut, and then once the bug hit me, the reading bug took over, I decided I wanted to write those stories. And I think with that thing I mentioned earlier about reading Pet Cemetery, I think I was eight or nine. Oh, man. Yeah. And then I thought, right, not only do I know I want to write, I want to write things that make people feel this way, scared, enjoyed, enjoying being scared. I don't want to traumatize anyone. Yeah, it's it's just kind of funny that you went that route as opposed to you know wanting to be like a John Grisham type. Yeah, yeah, you would think so. And it's weird because I started reading John Grisham just like along with everybody else as soon as he uh, he made it big. Because he started out as a lawyer, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. I unfortunately still have not read anything by John Grisham. They're pretty good. I mean, I haven't read them in a long time, but when, you know, things like The Firm and The Pelican Brief and A Time to Kill, all those came out, I was absolutely lost in those. I thought they were fantastic. I was going to say, that's a good little run right there, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, very much. And, uh, yeah, it is actually interesting that I never went there. I think it was just a matter of what I was exposed to and when. Mm -hmm. And it hit the right kind of note for me. And, And I come from a a culture where storytelling was you still had people sitting around the fire when I was a kid telling ghost stories, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted that. I had the bug. I just wanted to tell people ghost stories. And it's just happened that I had a love for reading at the same time and decided that the two of them together was pretty cool. And it was something I, I really wanted to do, but I didn't, obviously when you're that young, you don't know the logistics of it. You don't know if it's a viable ambition. Oh yeah, definitely. So I went for journalism and graduated in that. And like I said earlier, no jobs. So I started writing stories instead. You eventually uh, became, didn't you say you eventually became a a private investigator? Fraud investigator. Fraud investigator. Yeah, private investigator would have been way cooler. Yeah. Then I would have had my own office with my name on the door and I'd be an alcoholic sipping from that bottle of whiskey in the lower drawer. Doing your I'd own voiceovers. Doing my own narration for my for every day of my life, yeah. More more so than I already do. <laughs> so as a so as a fraud investigator, more um more of an office job? Yeah, more of a cubicle job. It's okay. uh it was basically it's not nearly as interesting as it sounds. It was basically where 
uh, working for a credit card com- a credit card company and basically somebody dumping evidence onto your computer and said, here's where everything went wrong for all of these accounts across all of these platforms. Find the common link, narrow that down to find information on the where, the how, and the who. Put them all together, I did, uh, question suspects within the parameters of what you're allowed to ask and what you're not, which is all very bureaucratic and very frustrating. Yeah. And basically come up with the answer and then hire people you never see to go arrest them and job's done. Uh, well, I mean, it... So, I mean, you can also look at it as uh, you, you know, you're the one that gives the orders. Like, oh, hey, I found this guy. You go get him. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. And, I mean, you know, we had a lot of... A lot of um, collaboration with law enforcement we, you, you end up getting to know an awful lot of people in the uh, in the law enforcement business the FBI the ICE even you know you talk to a lot of postal inspectors it was it was really interesting I, I was enthralled by it and it was rewarding but ultimately kind of exhausting too because you just you are exposed to the worst of the worst almost all day long yeah that's true it's there is something fun about it because I mean I, I work retail and you know anytime like we catch people stealing and the cops show up it's always fun to be like okay they come in it's like all right who who caught him or who called us and I'm just automatically like me here's the rundown yeah. here's what happened you know well then I did that actually back in the day I, I did retail security which makes everybody laugh when they look at me because you know I look like a clothes hanger with ears but <laughs> it was it was fun I mean it was fun up until the moment where you realized why the person was stealing something yeah and it was purely because they just needed it yeah that's so true I, I was pretty shitty at that job because if I got the sense somebody was doing it out of desperation they just needed something I just let them go I can see that and unfortunately, it was all on camera, and I got asked a lot why I left somebody going. I was like, oh, come on, though. Didn't you see him? They were starving, and it was just a loaf of bread and, uh, you know, a couple of pairs of shoes and oh, man. a couple of diamond bracelets. And so I, don't, I wasn't good at it. I don't have the heart to be mean to people. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I, I'm the same way. Like, like you said, if, you know, if, if I see somebody come stumbling in and just looking like they're tore up and they grab a bottle of you know liquor and throw it in their jacket and it's like okay well that person i'm gonna stop but then you see somebody come in looking all withered and they grab like baby formula and it's just like "Ah, like damn it do i really want to stop that person yeah you know that's why i think i lasted six months in that job because they're i think their loss actually went up after they hired me oh man yeah so i i don't know i just I only took the job out of desperation myself, you know, I mean, it was a, like I said, the economy was in the toilet, so getting any job was a good thing, and I just didn't, I didn't like getting in there every morning, and what I had to look forward to for the day was not, as the brochure told me, to safeguard the contents of this retail store, and more, how many people am I going to really just fuck up their day today, you know? Yeah, exactly, that, it's just funny, because when I started... Uh, at where I work now, I just hit, um, I just hit 10 years there about uh, a month ago, maybe. Um, yeah. and I, I, I got hired right as the recession in 2008 hit. Yeah. So, so I, I got hired at a, a very lucky time that I got hired, but also 
my minimum work hours were 16 hours a week and I started to live on my own right when I got to my minimums of 16 hours a week and getting $99 every Friday when you live on your own is not very much at all. Oh God, no. Yeah, that was, I always, I always tell people because we, we get paid every Friday and I always said I ate like a king from Friday to Sunday, from Monday to Thursday, I ate like a peasant. <laughs> oh man, I can tell you days where <clears throat> I was living for a week, I would live on a, a cup of soup per day. Oh yeah. You know, everything was the rent and with nothing for food and you just that's why it, it grates on me these days when you see people online begging for charity and you know I have a certain degree of sympathy on a case-by-case basis but you have these people going oh my god I can't make the rent will you please help me and they ask people for help and that's fine but then if you look through their posts over the previous weeks you see that they're celebrating they just got a new xbox or something and I think the I think the idea of what poverty means has really changed over over the over the last few decades because for me poverty meant that if you wanted the lights to stay on you didn't go to a movie you just sat on the floor and thank Christ the lights were going to stay on. Yeah. Now it's like oh I can't make my rent because I went out every night this week I just bought a new PlayStation and but now I woke up to the reality of what what I've done and somebody else needs to step in and take care of that for me because hey online it's all about making people feel bad so they feel good for you yeah there's you know there's reaching out and then there's basically straight up pandering yeah exactly and i mean you know i'm i love helping people out if i can i'm i'm you know i i understand that life is shit a lot of the time and if any if i'm in a position to do something about that i will oh, but definitely. like like anything else it's exploitable you know it is one of these things that now it's so easy to ask for money and get it that there's very little reason for people not to do it oh yeah and and i don't like when people say oh you help that person out it's a very selfish thing it's like well why is that a selfish thing i help them out and they're like well because you got gratification from it it's like well yeah i got gratification for it i you know i like to help people out and it's like no you knew you were going to get their gratification, and that is the only reason why you helped them out. And it's like, can't I just do a damn good thing for somebody? Why does it always have That's to... absolutely preposterous. You I know. Mean, if you're someone who goes out on the street and gives a homeless guy a suit of clothes, $10,000, and a cheeseburger, and films it, and then puts it on YouTube with sad music playing over it, okay, you might be slightly guilty of oh, yeah. your audience, and you're doing it not just because you're a good person, but because you know you're going to get attention. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, being, helping people out is now something you can be accused of doing to be selfish. Yeah. That's that's gotta, like the motto of everything that's gone wrong in the last fucking 20 years in this country. In, oh in, in the world. You, you, you have to be doing everything for a reason. You can't do it just to do it. Well, that says more about the person saying that to you than it does about you. I mean, yeah, seriously, if they're looking for the, the, the sneaky motive, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's been times when, you know, you will see a homeless person and walk into the store, walk out and buy them a sandwich and hand it to them and, you know, say, hey, you know, hey, here you go. And don't tell anybody about it. You just exactly. you just did it Yep. because they needed it. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I mean, I would tell you about some of the amazingly charitable things that I've done, but then I'd be telling you about it. Yeah, see, there you go. It's a very selfish thing to do, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I'm, well, I'm the worst. If you're expecting anything better than from me, you just, you haven't done your research. <laughs> That's, that sounds like me, though. Oh, yeah. I'm an awful, awful person. <laughs> <laughs> see, we keep we keep circling back around to, to well, you social know, issues. I, I'm just old enough now to be reflective on my life, and I think I was kind of a bit of an asshole. But at the same time, I'm trying to make up for it too. So there's that. There there's one thing. There's one thing to acknowledge who you have been, and there's another thing to actually acknowledge it, learn from it, and try to do better. But yeah, now nah, I'm just kidding. I'm I've always been an absolute just gold standard person <laughs> sorry i almost said that without laughing but. <laughs> almost got through it mm-hmm. um well the one of the things i uh was wanting to ask is you know obviously you're you're very popular on bookstagram and one of the uh most popular of your works that's on there is kin yeah. and what i wanted to ask is is it pretty obvious where you got your inspiration for that one like texas chainsaw massacre kind of and 70s exploitation movies and things like that yeah that's exactly right and and what it was the origin of that was um oh jeez i can't even remember what it was but a long time ago on a message board i used to frequent people were talking about uh movies like wrong turn and texas chainsaw massacre novels all of which i enjoyed to some degree but um I made what I thought was a legitimate complaint because it's what I what I felt about those movies and still do is that yeah they're good and they're great representations of both the time period in which they were made and the culture and their statements usually the good ones are statements about something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was largely assumed to be a criticism of Vietnam mm, okay and I thought but imagine how much better they would be if we knew the characters like if we had some depth to the killers themselves and the victims how much more invested we would be in everything that happened if we legitimately cared about these people if there was dimensions to them and of course as you can imagine this being the internet i got the usual backlash oh, the fuck is that what they're fucking supposed to be there blah, blah, blah. and i'm like, okay okay all right well i'm not i'm not disrespecting the movies i appreciate them a great deal for what they are um I, I have been as entertained by them as anybody else. A little less so as I get older, but, you know, I guess that's kind of natural. Yeah, and what what really made me want to, to pick it up was, you know, I, I had seen a lot of people posting about it, and I was just like, okay, well, maybe it's time to look in and see what this is about, and I can't remember where it was, but something had said, you know, have you ever wondered about, what happened to the girl at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and what happened when she got home. Yeah. It said like, the, it basically said like, this is that story. And I was just like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> I, like I really love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, you know, the original. And to me, when I read the, uh, the synopsis for Ken, I was like, Holy shit, this, this is what should have been more or less Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. Right, right. Well, and I mean, that's it, yeah. It was, I wanted to write something. I had no interest in just writing a version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In no way did that interest me or anything similar. You know, I didn't want to just do, oh, teens in peril get fucked up, one escapes, the end. Yeah. I just, I wanted to humanize everyone from from the victims to the killers, and particularly the killers. I wanted to say, well... 
it's not enough for me in whatever I do. It's not enough to just say, well, they were all crazy and just went after people with axes and chainsaws. And, you know, that's just how it is. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to try and understand why, what confluence of events and beliefs and everything would motivate somebody not just to do that, but to think that that was what needed to be done for a noble purpose, like that there was a cause. And again, once I had that early, that if I was going to do what I wanted to know who these people were, and the clincher for me was exactly what you just said there, what I imagined was, okay, so if you look at any of these movies and the final girl, which has now, of course, become a, a term people prefer we don't use anymore, so mm -hmm. the survivor, we'll say, um, what the hell kind of life is waiting for her? Because it's usually a female. She escapes. We as the audience are relieved that she got away. But imagine that character coming back home and thinking back on all that she saw. The loss of her friends. Oh, God, yeah. How do you acclimate to the life of a survivor after something so atrocious? It's, and once those once those two things came together for me, that's when I sat down and I said, all right. And then the third thing was I went to a wedding and we passed through Alabama. It was my first time going through there. And people say, well, you know, Alabama's not all rednecks and blah, blah, blah. And I know it isn't. It's a, it's a beautiful state. But what I saw was the tree that opens the book and a cotton field. And I had never seen cotton growing in the wild. And I just lost my mind for it. Yeah. I thought, this is amazing. And and it was all wispy, and there was the sun was shining, and there was all this all these little moats floating across the field, and I just thought, all right, there's there's where we start. So I went to the wedding. I was nodding politely to everybody, but I was already writing it in my head. Mm -hmm. And then I got home, and I think I wrote the first hundred pages in probably three days. Oh damn! Yeah, so I was on fire then. From then on, I just I just went with it. But yeah, that's that's kind of. That's where that comes from, and I'm glad it, it resonates so much with readers. I don't think I could write that book now. Uh, I don't think I'd want to, for starters, because it kind of grosses me out. I was going to say, it seemed like it might have been, once you finished, you were like, All right, I'm glad I did that, and I'm actually glad I'm done, because that was a little draining. Exactly. It's out of me now. Go away, you hideous beast. Back yeah. into you know. But people dig it, and I love that. I mean, that's ultimately why we do it, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's not one that I'm eager to reread myself. You know? I and and I f I think I found out about it. I think it was this year, but didn't you write that uh, in, a few years ago? Isn't it a few years old now? It was. Oh man, I'm useless with this stuff. <laughs> I th I think it was probably 2000, 2010, maybe. Oh, okay. See, I was in 2012. Wow. So it. It was a. Uh... You might be right, actually. You might be right about that. I mean, the books are behind me here, but I don't want to get up to look at them. Um, <laughs> it could be, yeah. You're probably right if 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 that's what it is. I know it's around there somewhere. So it was but definitely it was, a, a slow burn to get to to get to the level of popularity that it is now. Oh yeah, I mean, when these books came out, most of them were released as limited editions from small press publishers, so they'd have maybe a print run of five, six hundred, maybe. Oh, okay. And once those sold out, that was it. You know, you could get them on eBay probably, but you wouldn't be able to just pick it up and read it. So what happened was then a few years ago when the digital explosion thing happened on Kindle and everywhere else, I made all the books available there. And 
its popularity started to increase once people could just pick it up that easily. Yeah, definitely. That's that's how I read it. Was I was like, well, I really want to read this now, and I am impatient even with Amazon's two day shipping. I was like, I'm just gonna buy the damn Kindle version, and then I'll get the paperback later, which is exactly what I did and flew through that book in two days. Yeah, well, that's great, and, and I mean, that's one of the things I love about Kindle too is that I went from kind of the moderate popularity, which is really all you can expect from limited edition publishers where, you know, only the amount of people who read the book, that will basically be your audience. Mm-hmm. And when you're, the print run is limited, so too is the audience. But then when the digital thing came around, that allowed it to become infinite. And it was such a radical change. Yeah, I've, I've seen the Cemetery Dance editions of Ken, and I'm just so jealous I don't own one of those yet. God, they're beautiful. And I mean, that's the thing that the, for all the paperbacks I might put out myself, the original limited editions of, I think, everything I have done are just absolute beauties. I have them all here behind me, but they're gorgeous books to look at and high production values as well, which better than the, the mass market ones because lower print runs means you can give them extra attention, can spend more on the materials and everything. Mm-hmm. And they got bells and whistles and everything. It's beautiful. So, so did you do you only have like one copy of each book, or do you ask for like a handful? Well, they send you like back when when uh, those came out, they would send you about twenty copies of them. Oh wow! Yeah, which promptly vanished because you know once you get them, everybody wants one, and it's okay. Happy Christmas, lazy Christmas presents. <laughs> but I, I'd be happy, that's for sure. Happy Christmas! Here's a book about people getting cut up to pieces. <laughs> From, you know, from somebody you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, from me. Yeah. Well, according to Amazon, it says the Kindle version, it says published January 4th, 2012. I don't know if that's that particular edition or if Cemetery Dance came out before that. That's what that would have been. You know what? I want to say that that came out 2012, and that would put, I think, the limited edition right around two, between 2008 and 2010. Oh, wow, okay. Oh damn! So that's almost, it's almost ten years old at this point. Yep. Oh damn. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been around a while. I mean, the Turtle Boy came out in two thousand three, I think. Oh wow. Yeah, and that's the one that kind of put me on the map. It won the Stoker Award, and after that, people started going, "Who's this son of a bitch who came out of nowhere?" Yeah, I, I was. I was going to ask, what was your, you know, very like your first successful one where you were like, "Damn, this is this is doing something," but I'm gonna. I'm going to guess it's that one, because once you get a Stoker reward, you're like, all right, maybe it is worth something. It was, and I would argue how much it's worth, because, you know, like, the further I get away from the earliest books, the less I like them. I just, I can't help but look at them and see everything that's wrong with them. I can, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's. I'm sure I'd be stunned if any other writer didn't have the exact same problem, that once you get a bit of distance, you look back on it, and you're more assured in your writing you've gotten better at it and you look back at the old stuff and go ah what i wouldn't give to just rewrite that again but at the time it struck what seems to be that perfect note of nostalgia for people who loved um it and stand by me or the body novella and Mm -hmm. robert mcgammon's mystery walk and boy's life it just seemed to hit that that sweet note for people who love to read about american childhood so, I don't know. I don't know really what it was. I have to assume that that's what it was because, you know, um, it's a short it's a short story, but people 
people really seemed to dig it. It was really surprised me, and it surprised me even more to win that award because I think that year it was up against the Stephen King novella as well. Oh, really? Yeah, and once that happened and I won it, I knew it was all it was all rigged. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like how much did how much did they pay you for this? Yeah, yeah. Why did Stephen King decide to throw me a bone and ah, give it to that poor <laughs> Irish guy? <laughs> Have you, by chance, ever spoken to him at all about anything? Or no, I've uh, I've dealt with him through his representative, Marcia De Filippo, because we uh, I put together an anthology a few years, but Jesus, what ten more than that years ago, uh, called Quietly Now, which was a tribute anthology to Charles L. Grant. Mm-hmm. So we we dealt with uh, we dealt with him then to get a, get a story from him for that. But no, I mean we've. I don't even know what I would say to him. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. How's it going? All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. Or you know. Are you uh, um? Are you currently working on things right now? Or are you always working on something? Always. Yeah. I'm actually. Um. And it's so friggin' great to be able to say this. I cannot articulate how happy I am to be able to say this. But I've written a lot of a lot of novellas. There's been a couple of collections, things that have come out over the past few years. But I've only it's been six years since I wrote my last novel, mm-hmm. and I'm about I would say 75 pages away from finishing a new one. Oh, right on. Yeah. So it's uh, and I haven't seen you know, on my output in that regard. I write a lot of short stuff. I think I've written over 200 short stories and novellas and stuff, but. As far as novellas or novels go, I think I've, I think this will be the sixth one. Do you just prefer short stories, or do you just like writing them more? No, I just I find them easier to write. Yeah, you know, I don't. I have, and this is no exaggeration. At the very least, I have a million words of unfinished stories and novels on my hard drive. Okay. Easily a million, and that was the last time I did an estimate of it, and that was a few years ago, so I don't know. But I just, I find that I can control novellas and short stories more, that I'm confident in the world I'm building, I know the start, middle, and end. When it comes to novels, I frequently peter out of it. I talk myself out of it an awful lot. I'll have written 100 pages, and then go, well, this is a pile of shit, good night. Oh, man. Yeah, it happens all the time. And this one, usually it's years of being in my head before I'm ready to sit down and write it. Like Kim, I think, was three years of me thinking about it before I finally thought I was ready to write it. Oh, man. Yeah, but this one, I had no idea for it. I hadn't planned it. I sat down, wrote one page one night, as one morning at 2 a.m., left it there, went to bed, woke up the following morning, started writing it again, and... A month later, I had sixty thousand words. I think done. I was I was gonna ask if you think it's gonna be uh, longer than usual or just you know right on par with everything else. No, it's it's gonna be a lot longer than anything I've done. Oh, right on. That's the like thing. say now pre-editing. You know, I mean, at, at the moment it's looking like it's gonna be very long, but whether. Uh, whether I decide or my agent decides or an editor decides, it could end up being a lot shorter. Yeah, that's true. It could so, be 10 minutes long. So if if things go as perfectly as they can, are you looking at maybe having that out by this time next year? 
Uh, I don't know, because usually what I did with the shorter stuff was I would write it, uh, get it edited after editing it myself, get it proofread, do the rounds of readers, design the cover, stick it up on Amazon. Maybe if it was long enough, bring it out on paperback, and there you go, it's done. But this is be the first novel I've written uh, where I had an agent. So I'm just going to basically, when this is done, hand it to her, see what she thinks of it, and if she likes it, start shopping it around. It could end up in New York. That's the hope always, of course. If yeah. it doesn't, if it doesn't, I'll get it back, rewrite it, and maybe do it myself. I don't know. We'll see. I don't actually have. I don't have great plans for it. I haven't planned anything. I've just been writing it. Yeah, I feel like you. You know, you can't focus too much on after you finish writing it. You have to stay focused on writing it. Yeah, but it's usually even in the past. I've had some notion of what I was going to do once it was done, and with this one. Honestly, it's very refreshing because I feel like I'm writing this one for myself mm -hmm. and that if it doesn't work out or if it's a pile of shit, who knows, that I'll just move on to the next one. And I have three more plans that I hope to get done by the end of next year. Oh, right on. Yeah. Are, is everything else, like, um, everything else you have physically released, um, for the most part, is that all self-published? Um, well, it was all, most of it, I would say... Probably 90% of it was published with Cemetery Dance or other um, small press mm -hmm. places first. And then I went and did them digitally and put out the paperbacks myself. Oh, but the last few that I've released, I did completely myself, like Sour Candy and Blanky and all that stuff. Oh, God, those those two are just messed me up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you not too long ago about when I finished... Uh, blanking in a certain scene just like i said i had everybody in the break room at work looking at me because the hands just flew up to my face <laughs> there is no greater compliment that you can give a writer particularly a horror writer than to say that that's the the reaction that it evoked because ultimately that's why we do it we do it to entertain and we do it to get it elicit a reaction from you and once you do that then i consider it a success yeah it's it's i mean that's why I mean, I, I'm assuming that's why people want to read. It's why I read is to, you know, hopefully come across something I've never seen before or imagined, basically. And and yeah, there was definitely a scene in that one where I was just like, "Holy shit! This that I have never seen that before." <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, <clears throat> do you have a a favorite work of your own, or do you just kind of consider them all your babies? Or no, no, I hate them all. <laughs> that sounds about right I actually that's putting you know that's putting it too harshly but it's not a million miles from the truth and it's very upsetting for people to hear this so I never harp on about it but like what I said there about the turtle boy it's while I like them all as products of the time in my life in which they were written and I think I did a good enough job for the writer I was at any given point I don't really like very many of them. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say people, the, the most popular by a country mile is Kin. Everybody seems to dig that. And the people who don't, I agree with why they don't. You know, I, I think, yeah, you're right, that sucked. But, uh, you know, it's it only matters that people enjoy it. It doesn't really matter what I think of them. And honestly, if I thought that everything I had written was really, really great, I think it would affect my awareness of how much I always will need to improve. Mm. like I will die never having gotten good enough by my own standards 
And, yeah, I, I can understand that. And I think that that's how it's supposed to be. I think that if you can sit there and think you're a fantastic writer, you're just amazing and have nothing left to learn, then I think you're done. Yeah, it's... Then it's going to just become products of your ego as opposed to just exactly. your imagination. Yeah, and 100% correct. And, that, and you know, and there are things like when... I'll tell you when I love my books the most is when I hear from people like you talking about that part in Blanky that gave you that reaction. Mm-hmm. That's when I'm immensely proud of having written that story because it got that reaction. The same with Sour Candy when people have said, Dad, Jesus, I was freaking out when I read it. My husband read it after me and he freaked out too. I'm <laughs> delighted then. That, that's, that is no word of a lie, no exaggeration. That legitimately changes the tone of my day when I hear that, because I just imagine, you know those audience reaction videos, which I can't stand, but you know those, like, night vision audience reaction commercials they show for things like paranormal activity? I hate that bullshit, but it kind of feels like that. It kind of feels like you get a sneak peek at the audience reacting to something that you labored over and that you put your heart and soul into, and all of a sudden they're going, duh! Yeah, they... uh... Uh, A24, you know, who put out Hereditary, they were releasing an image of people's um, heart rates, and they were saying that, it might just be a marketing ploy, but they were saying watching that movie is equivalent to two hours of exercise, and they're showing several heart rates, and they're slowly rising throughout the movie, but as soon as it hits the 90-minute mark, a lot of people's heart rates went up to like 165 beats a minute, and then kind of petered out after that 90-minute mark, which... You know, if you've seen the movie, which I know you have, that 90-minute mark is is when shit just goes haywire. I absolutely, and you know what? It's it's funny because I go to see every, almost every horror movie that's worth seeing that yeah. comes out. Like, even if it's divided reaction among audiences, if it makes me curious, I'll go see it. Because I love to see what a particular director, writer, actress will do with something. But I can tell you honestly now, because it's funny, even today, again, I'm having a real hard time shaking that film. Oh, yes, definitely. It is sticking with me in ways that only a handful of movies ever have, where you just keep out of the blue flashing on something from it and going, fuck. <laughs> yes. I, I I, mean, I, you know, I like scary movies and not a whole lot of things scare me in, in general, like outside of movies, like I'm not... You know, I'm not afraid of ghosts or, you know, I don't, I'm not afraid of something being underneath the bed or whatnot, but we got home from watching the movie that night, getting ready to go to sleep. And my girlfriend tells me, she, you know, she's like, oh, can you go, you know, make sure the, the front door is locked? I said, yeah, I start walking out there. I got about midway through my living room and I kind of just stopped because it was pitch black out there. I kind of stopped and just like looked around the room really slowly, checked the yeah. doorknob and just ran back to the room. <laughs> Yeah, and you know what, that's the thing I love about it, is that <clears throat> if you go to see a movie where it's all jump scares, you'll probably jump, go, Jesus, but you get home and you're all giggly and laughing about exactly. it. Exactly. You know, oh, that was a fun roller coaster ride or a little trip through the ghost house, but I'm over it now and it's like McDonald's, you know, that's it, you're done. It, yeah, just filler. But these are the ones, and while I have a certain appreciation for the jump scare ones too, like I, it's not my favorite, but I, I like to be scared and jump and have a reaction like that every now and again. But the ones that I enjoy the most and the stuff that I try to write is the stuff that gets under your skin. Mm-hmm. The stuff that lingers, where you're sitting there eating a friggin' taco 
outside in the sunshine at 7 p.m. on an afternoon having a laugh with your friends and you'll turn and look at some woman walk into her car and get flashed by a desolate scene from a movie that you watch that just will not leave you alone. Exactly. Or it kind of it, it evokes some existential dread in you when you're watching it. So, And the problem is, like, what I noticed from a lot of the reaction to Hereditary is people going in expecting to be jumping out of their seats and like they were electrocuted. Yeah, and it's funny because I was expecting some jump scares because for the most part you can't see any movie without some form of a jump scare. And I did jump one time in that movie, and I honestly don't know why because it wasn't it wasn't a loud noise. It wasn't a music cue or anything. It was just the sound effect that I feel like the movie is going to become known for. Unfortunately, like as good as a movie as it is, I feel like it's going to be known for that one specific uh, sound effect that is used effectively. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I did jump one time when that happened. And like I, like I said, I can't tell you why, but I did... No, jump. I think I get it. I, I think I know exactly the moment you're, ta- you're talking about. We won't ruin it for anybody, of course, but yeah. I and think I know when you're talking about because I jumped too. Oh, man. If it is the same moment, that is going to... Then maybe it, it was effective. They, they you know, did it perfectly, but the the rest of the movie, I just found myself, you know, white-knuckling my arm, uh, the arms in the chair and leaning back in my seat, just, just oh, overwhelming sense of dread. The entire time. And that's it, and I think that's the difference. You know, there are two two ways that horror movies affect me. There's the pretzel and there's the the um, the dance. The dance is like, and your arms are going everywhere because yeah. you got shocked. But the pretzel is where you're trying to tie yourself and not to make yourself as small as possible <laughs> down into that seat. And you're like, oh my God, what the fuck did I just see? That is a perfect metaphor for that. I... But, but that's it, and the ones I remember... The ones that endure are the ones that have the hair actually standing up, and I'm I'm crouched down in my seat looking at it, going, "Oh my god, that's so wrong! What is that? Why is that happening?" Yeah, and see, and there's movies that have that have jump scares, and they use them effectively, but also like it's it may be a jump scare type, but when it happens, you don't even jump; you just grip your seat even tighter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a really like a really good effective use of that in the first insidious movie which i love a lot of people don't like it for whatever reason but i really like the insidious movies that well, all the first two i i haven't seen the latest and the third one was kind of eh to me yeah but it's when the the mom is telling the story of of uh oh man uh, patrick wilson's character when he was a kid and then you hear that like tree branch snapping sound and then it cuts to the shot of him but that red-faced demon is standing behind him and like yeah it's a really loud jump scare but i did not jump whatsoever i just wanted to sink into the floor even more to get away from that image you know do you know what got me actually speaking of images from that is uh i love and it's something i actually really appreciate about james wan's movies is how creative he gets with the scares oh yeah and the part that got me i think it was in cities i'm pretty sure it is is the where the man is pacing outside the room. Yes. And he goes over and back, over and back, and on his next comeback, he's inside the fucking room. Yes. 
And I just, what I find myself marveling at is who sits down and says, how about this? There's a guy pacing outside and on his return <laughs> arc, he's inside. And I'm there going, you sick bastard. <laughs> the, the same one actually was a very effective use is when she goes to check in on the on the baby and she and it's it's really cool because the camera's following her she walks into the baby's room and the camera lingers on the room for maybe two seconds and you're you know looking at the room and then all of a sudden you realize oh shit there's somebody in the corner and like right when you realize it is when they play the music and she gets scared and everything and that's it was just so effective how they did that yeah i love that i love that level of creativity because there's so much lazy horror out there you know it's like Let's do, like we'll say for example the found footage thing, which still does have its moments, but usually it's a bunch of screaming asshole kids inside a building in night vision, and suddenly there's a thing in the corner with a stretch mouth, and then everyone's running away. Yeah, you know, I mean, I like it when you try to get uh, like that. Jerusalem was a bit of an attempt to do something different with that, and uh, I kind of dug that one actually, Jerusalem? especially the last. Yeah, it's Jerusalem with a Z in the middle. Huh, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Yeah, that one kind of took a religious angle, which I found very interesting. You know, about it's the typical stranger in a strange land, fish out of water type thing with these tourists, but it got sufficiently oppressive for me to to start to feel their panic Mm. instead of just rolling my eyes because there's a bunch of shaky cam and people screaming. Yeah. Plus, I think they used Google eyeglasses. Oh, okay. As, or whatever the hell they're called. Uh-huh. So, so it was a bit more stable than your usual guy inexplicably carrying his VHS camcorder down a flight of stairs while he's been chased by werewolves or whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was that was enjoyable. But it's you know, there's a lot of laziness out there. A lot of, if we copy this and just do it a different way, it'll be just you know we'll make some bit of money off Amazon or whatever. Oh, and, yeah. then, and then you have somebody who takes the tradition and says, okay, we're going to make a ghost house movie. How do we take an entire subgenre that's, you know, that, that has been mined to death and do it in a different way? That at least is enough to get me in the theater because I want to see that. I want to see how are you going to do, how are you going to startle jaded people? Mm, exactly. You know, and I I like that about James Wan's stuff and and some of those Blumhouse movies is that they just you walk in with this cockiness going eh, scare me then yeah and I, they do they I, I did that going to see The Conjuring too I was like there's there's no way this is going to be as as scary and effective as the first one and holy shit it was yeah I liked that and I, part of that I think might be familiarity with that. Uh, case you know that it's based on Mm, true like you know it was all bullshit but it was it was interesting because you're you're when you get older you look back on all those things and go god how was i so naive to actually think that any of that was true but at the same time when i first became aware of them you were a kid and you were reading them in these grainy magazines about the paranormal and you wanted to believe them oh yeah so yeah that one worked for me too i did like those i've liked those two conjurings and I like the first two in cities as well. I haven't seen the third one. It, I, I don't know. I just didn't find it. It, I mean, it was, you know, directed by Lee Wanell who wrote the first two and wrote the, no, he didn't write the conjuring. I don't Or did he write the conjuring? I can't remember now, but I know he wrote, he has written all the insidious films and, but the third one he directed and it just, 
didn't have the same feel. And to me, I mean, I won't ruin anything in the event you watch it, but the only time I genuinely got scared uh, in the same sense of watching the other ones is the like final shot in the whole movie. The shot happens, it ends. And then I'm like, damn it. Why couldn't that have happened multiple times throughout this entire movie? Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, the longer that sequels go on, I think you just get a natural fatigue from the similar setups and, you know... Yeah. It gets, I think, increasingly harder for the people who write and direct them to to consistently come up with stuff that's as effective. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, you you try to come up with new ways, but you're just kind of rehashing things at this point. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't ever want to... Like, everything I've written, people write to me and go, is there going to be a sequel to this? And I'm like, you know what, I would always be open to the idea of it. I just, I have so many different things I want to write about that the idea of revisiting any one thing I've already written is is less appeal, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you're working on an idea and you're like, oh, this sounds similar to this, and then you keep fleshing it out, and, you're, and then you go, well, damn, maybe this can be a sequel to that because it's, you know, it sounds like a continuation of it, basically. Yeah, and the, I mean, the thing is, like, there are sequel ideas to most of the bigger ones. Like, I mean, I have, <clears throat> almost start to finish, I have uh, a sequel idea for Kin, which is actually a prequel, not a sequel. But um, Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I have pretty much the whole of that in my head, but it doesn't matter. Once it needs to be written, that's when I'll write it. I couldn't write it because somebody demanded it, you know? Yeah, that's that's what I liked about what... Stephen King has said about some some of the stories that people don't really like or take to, and he's like, "Well, you know what? That was that was the story that my head was telling me needed to be written. I wrote it. It's out there. I'm on to the next one now." Well, yeah, and that's exactly right because this uh, novel I'm finishing up now is one I hadn't planned at all, and when it started, it, I didn't know what it was, so I just followed the thread, and it turns out it's going to be one of the most, I'd say personal things i've written ever oh man and that's i feel like that's good because i feel like people can definitely tell when they run up while they're reading this yeah exactly i mean you know it has a it has a framework of of being our story but there's an awful lot of i don't know self-analysis and probably self-therapy involved in it i don't know it's too early yet for me to have an objective view of what it is and even when I do decide what it is, it's probably going to differ to what everybody else sees it as. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know. And I meant to say this earlier when we were talking about uh, Blanky, and it's so funny because, <clears throat> you know, you we, were, we started this off with you talking about Pet Cemetery, and I got very heavy Pet Cemetery vibes from Blanky. Uh, obviously, obviously because of the subject matter of, you know, the yeah. very traumatic thing of um, a child dying, but also just the way the characters were dealing with it and the, just the loss and like it's very emotionally draining, but in the, but in a good sense, you know, it's like, that's why you read pet cemeteries. Cause you, you want that drama. You want these characters to go through these things. And that's, I, I feel like you, you know, definitely achieve that in just the 50, 60 pages that Blinky is. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's great to hear because it's always, you know, I kind of stack the odds against myself with that one because nobody really will admit to and nobody probably wants to read about the death of a child. It is something that, you know, it's hard to, to even think about. And it was definitely hard to write about. 
because I'll tell you, one of the questions people ask me a lot, kind of on a par with when you asked me which of my books is my favorite, is um, what's the most fun you've ever had writing? Like what books were fun to write? And sometimes the assumption is that they all are. Mm-hmm. And that's not true in my case anyway. Um, there's a couple of books I've written that were just absolute torture to write and Blanky's one of them. Um, Jack and Jill would be another. I, that, that's that's another one I've seen that's really popular that I, I have yet to get to, but I really want to. You know, those left me completely wrecked after writing them. Like, I just, I had no fun at all writing them. And that's all right. I don't, you know, if I'm writing material like that, I don't think I should be having fun. Yeah. Not, if I, not if I want them to be honest, you know, or, or if I expect uh, from readers to have a genuine reaction to them, then I shouldn't be sitting here cackling away while I'm writing about such awful things. Yeah, I, 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 I can almost imagine the type of person who would, you know, write something like that and then, you know, come come out of your office and just totally giggling and your significant other's like, what? And you're like, oh, read what I just wrote. And they read and look at you and like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you laughing about this? Yeah, they would have therapy on speed dial. Oh, God, yeah. No, that one, that Blanky was a really hard one. Um, I didn't write for a month after writing that, you know, and usually I finish something, I'll take maybe a few days off, go do something mindless, play video games, catch up on movies or shows or whatever. Yeah. That one I didn't want to write for about a month after it. I just was kind of depressed. <laughs> just really hard to shake off. Yeah, it was. I, I you know, it's not it's not fun to write about horrible things happening to good people and I did legitimately believe that these were good people. Oh yeah, definitely. But then conversely, cuz you know, the lie in that is that I wrote something like The Tint which mm-hmm. people were kind of eh. And I had an absolute blast fucking them up. <laughs> See that that's different. When if you write people who I mean I'm I'm I, I like to write down ideas, but I am by no stretch of the imagination a writer uh, parentheses yet. But I feel like if you you know were to like you said you know you write characters you care about and have bad things happen to them you feel really bad but if you write shitty people with these terrible things happening to them you just have so much fun yeah well and then you know that you have the things like sour candy where i don't think that the main character phil was a bad guy and oh, yeah no he gets a bad run oh man and i had an absolute blast with that story I just loved every minute that I was working on it. And weirdly enough, I didn't want it to end, but I ended it where it basically dictated it needed to. See, that's good. Yeah, I think if I'd milked it, I would have lost some of the effect of it. And people always say that, oh, I wish it was longer. And I I know that, you know, it's great to hear that you want to spend more time in that world, but maybe if it had been longer, you wouldn't have because you'd have found, oh, it was great up until the last 10 pages. Yeah, exactly. So that's what it was. It was what it needed to be. Um, but Jesus, I can't remember ever having so much fun writing something. I'm I'm really glad I read that one um, before my whole uh, uh, dental escapade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll tell you one thing: where I, I was using kind of a description of saying, you know, it'd be bad if you came out after writing something cackling madly. I legitimately, no word of a lie, was cackling while I was writing that. <laughs> If anyone had seen me, they would have immediately called somebody because I was just tittering away here at the at the keyboard, just 
sniggering and fucking chuckling and going. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's because funny. it was so much fun. For starters, everything in the first ten, everything before the car accident at the beginning mm-hmm. is is real. That all happened to me. Oh wow! And I just and I have misophonia where I I have an adverse. Lots of people do. I have an adverse reaction to certain sounds. Mm-hmm. And babies crying, and I don't blame the babies or parents or anything like that. It's a fact of life. It's okay. But I went into Walmart one Saturday afternoon, and this kid was in there shrieking his fucking lungs out. I expected to see them hanging out of his mouth like airbags. Oh, man. And and I found myself, like, repelled by the sound, but also somewhat curious to see if somebody was being murdered. It was that bad. Oh, wow. And I went over, and his mom is the mom in the story. She was standing there with her hair all bedraggled. She looked like she'd thrown the coat on just so she wouldn't be naked. Ugh. And was staring at these bags in the candy aisle, in the sour candy. And the kid was staring at me. When he spotted me coming around the corner, he stared at me and let out, doubled down on the screaming and screamed oh. at And I thought for a second I actually saw the air move around that that scream like he, like vapor he was fucking, coming out of him like he was fucking aquaman or something oh, you know man it's air kind of bending when he did that and i just went okay bye yeah i was like did your curiosity go away and just your fright showed up <laughs> i had to go away because my ears started to hurt uh. and i did see people standing around shopping and they were just looking with these daggers like i want to murder that child and it was at and walmart I, it was at a Walmart. Yeah, and that after, sounds about right. After that, I walked out into the sunshine, and I thought, Jesus, thank God that's over. And I thought, but imagine if it wasn't. Imagine yeah. if I, I got home and that kid was standing there waiting for me, and he called me dad. And once I did that, oh, like, oh here we go. We're on now. <laughs> See, I feel like that's what I was going to you know, ask like about like influences where like you get your stories, but it's things like that. It's always the... Okay, well, this situation happened, and then it was over, but what if? Well, what if? It's always the what if. Always. What if it kept like going? The, the blankie was basically, or uh, I woke up one morning. I think I was hungover. I, I used to be a hardcore drinker. I don't drink anymore, but back in the day, I used to have these, I'd wake up in the morning hungover and have, I'd actually be still asleep and dreaming. And weird shit used to happen around the room, and I would thought I thought I was convinced I was wide awake, and this shit was happening to me. And I used to wake up with my heart exploding out of my chest from the the absolute terror of it. There was one where there was a pile of blankets that was really there. This is years ago. It's back in Ireland, and I woke up one night, still drunk, I think. And I rolled over, and there was a baby crawling out of that pile of blankets on the floor. Oh, my God. And I woke up screaming so loud there was neighbors knocking at the door. Utter horror. Pure, undistilled horror. Before your mind can kick in and try to rationalize things, you're drunk so you don't have complete control, and it just grabs you in a way that it rarely ever does outside of real-life horror. Yeah. So that kind of came back to me one night when I woke up here and I was sitting at the edge of the bed, I thought I was, and there was a children's blanket on the floor. And I just looked at it going, okay, there's a children's blanket on the floor. I don't know where it came from, but it's there. And it moved, and I woke up screaming. (laughs) 
And I just kept then, over the years, had this recurring image of a father sitting at the edge of a bed holding a child's blanket and crying. And that's all I had. So that was still all I had when I, when I sat down and started writing that. I just wanted to get that scene out because it was annoying me. I feel like it's almost like you said, like having a bad dream. They say, you know, if you keep having a recurring nightmare, talk about it, write it down, and it will go away. That's exactly right. And I mean, I think I have exercised years of trauma of all different types out of me through writing them down. And I like to think that that's why, you know, the best ones work for people on the levels that they do is because it is me being as honest as I can be about either shit that I've done or shit that's happened to me or worries that I have or anxieties I have. If you can't use your fiction as a place to put all that, then you, you get stuck living with it. Yeah, definitely. You know, and that's why this new one is going to be kind of uh, completely different again and a, a radical departure because it's basically me putting in a veiled version of the story of my life um, in... Uh, let me see how to best to say this without saying anything. Mm. Uh, it just it's kind of I guess a metaphorical view of the things that have defined who I am. Okay. Like if you take the title Mister Stitch, which is the working title for the book, Mister Stitch is basically the idea that we are all walking patchwork results of all the the material we've been given since oh. birth. It's it's funny because I was gonna ask if if you can say whether or not it's it could be classified as a horror novel, but d just by that title alone, to me already says hell yeah. Well, and it's been I've said like you know that a lot of the stuff I've written hasn't been much fun at all. It's weird because I thought if I ever got to a place where I would write something this personal, that it would be absolutely no fun at all. It would be horrible, but it's actually crazy fun i'm having so much fun with it that's good hopefully i mean obviously we really want to want to read it and i'm sure you're going to get a lot of feedback once you do release it well you know it's it's very funny this one too because again you would think something this personal it would really really matter to me how it will be received but honestly i don't I want it to work and I want people to enjoy it. But if they don't, I still needed to write it. Yeah. You know, it's not one of those things that I can just say, oh, you're wrong, it's brilliant. Because it's personal. It has to be brilliant. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't have to be anything. I'm just a guy sitting in a room writing a story. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But obviously I hope it does. But if it doesn't, then it's a catastrophic failure it will still have accomplished something for me that needed to be accomplished. So it just needed to be out there. Exactly. And in that regard, I will consider it a success one way or the other. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, uh, speaking about it being a little personal, uh, I've noticed on, uh, your Instagram other than, you know, it's a book. I mean, I'd say you're definitely a bookstagrammer because you do post pictures of books you're reading as well as your yeah. own or, yeah. you know, reposting, uh, your books that, other users like myself will take of your works. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah, and, you know, aside from that, and, you know, the occasional selfie here or there, we see a lot of pictures of your dog who I want to hear about. <laughs> I'm 
I'm surprised you didn't. It was actually barking there a minute ago. I kept oh, wow. If I didn't keep her out of the office, like usually when I'm writing, she's portraying the role of typical writer dog and she's asleep at my feet. Oh, okay. She goes, crawls in under the desk and just passes out for hours. However long I'm here, she's here. But I kept her out just in case because what she does, if she hears anyone within yards of the house walking by, she gets all high-pitched bark oh, going man. on. And I didn't want to you know, have that on your podcast. So uh, what inspired Blanky? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, he's finally gone fucking insane. Next. <laughs> uh, what is her name? Red. Oh, that, okay. For some reason, I I felt like I knew that, and then I, I saw another picture, and I was like, I think that is her name, but for now, I'm not so sure. And you know what? It's kind of a, <clears throat> it's not the name I would have chosen. It's the name that came with her, so I just decided to leave it. Plus, it kind of reminded me of Jack Ketchum's Red, which isn't the best, uh thing to remember because what happened to that dog wasn't very pleasant but I was going to say I haven't read it but I know what sets up the story and I know it's not very good yeah it's basically John Wick only you know not <laughs> kind of, if John Wick was like a Charles Bronson type yeah yeah but um so no what happened was uh I I love dogs I, I've had a number of them throughout my life but I went to the animal shelter <clears throat> And I was looking at them and I was just kind of trying to get an idea of the breeds and, you know, what I might one day get not too long in the future. And it was almost exclusively all pit bulls that were in there, just which is absolutely a disgrace. It's just everybody seems to want to get rid of these poor animals. So I was looking through them and uh, just walking by and saying hi to them all. And it looked like there was one empty crate there and no sound coming out of it nothing so i was about to walk by red comes out with her head bowed and just looked at me with those eyes and i was completely screwed yeah the woman who was like you know showing me around and everything like that i said to her i just i want to bring that one home and she said wouldn't you like to know about the history and everything she's been horribly abused she needs this she needs that i don't care i said just give her to me so they gave me the leash let me take her outside in the yard and i ran a couple of laps with the dog dog was jumping around delighted and came back in and the girl was looking at me like she had expected me to change my mind and i said no just i don't care just i don't i don't care what the deal is and she said well she's been with two families before and they didn't know how to handle her and they, uh, the last family had children, and she wasn't rough with the children, but they were very loud, and it startled her. She's basically afraid of everything. Oh, man. So I said, uh, okay, and I filled in the forms, paid the fee, the whole lot, and they said, uh, and here's all the information you need for when you bring her back. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> And in that moment, if there had been a day, and dear Jesus, there's been a few of them, where I might have said, okay, I'm not cut out for this, uh, that that ended that. I was like, nope, forget it. Yeah. And it does. Like, she, she's most of the time, she just chills out, or she's fun, she wants to play, she's very good around other animals, she loves other dogs, loves kids, everything. She has a moment where she is startled by everything. She will run away if you adjust the light, we'll say, or if she sees a shadow, or... 
if the next door neighbors run their garbage disposal, she can hear the slight hum of it and then runs. Oh, man. But most of the time, she's just as chill as a dog can be, and she gets absolutely spoiled rotten. I am now near poverty because it's not enough to just get the dog cheap things. I have to get the <laughs> best of all these things. I swear you would think a kid lives here. There's nothing but toys everywhere. Oh, man. that's And, and I'm assuming she's just afraid of everything, probably just because of her past trauma and oh, all yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, As you can kind of tell sometimes by, you know, she spends most of her time lying across my feet or up on the couch, nestled against me, sleeping. She feels totally safe with me. But in certain lights, if I'm imposing, if she looks at me, looks up at me, and I'm standing over her, looking threatening, now not like my expression or anything, just my presence there, mm-hmm. she will shrink down herself and start growling because she thinks she's going to be hit. Oh, man. Yeah. But so much for their take-her-back policy. We've had her two years now almost. Oh, right on. Um, I remember uh, my grandma used to have a dog that she had her for, man, 12, 13 years, maybe almost 15. Uh, yeah. And, you know, she eventually passed of old age, so she said she wanted to wait a little bit before getting another dog, if she was getting another dog. And it just so happened that my uh, my brother's father-in-law brought home a uh, stray one day, and they he lived with them for a little while and eventually he told my grandma like hey why don't you you know why don't you take him and try him out and see if you you know you want to keep him and all that and um she eventually did but she said one night when they were playing her and her old dog what they would do was she you know she'd roll up a newspaper and just kind of wave it in front of her face and she would you know just attack the newspaper this and that and so (laughs) she was like oh you know that's what we used to do let's you know let's do that and so she grabbed the newspaper rolled it up as soon as and like the dog's playing with her but as soon as she raised that newspaper the dog just dropped yeah. Just straight up dropped it, not playing anymore. <laughs> yeah, this isn't funny anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, I mean, I'm a huge animal lover, so I don't, I don't understand people who just disregard animals as, as things. I don't, and I mean, it, it enrages me, it still does. Every Every day I get up, I walk out, and when I go to bed, without saying anything, like a dog will be in there with me in the living room, when I go to bed... The dog follows me and then turns in right and goes into I have a crate with a ridiculously plush mattressy thing in there for <laughs> Oh, it's crazy. We put body pillows and everything in there. But she diverts as I go to the bedroom, she diverts into the right into the office, goes into her bed and will stay there until I get up in the morning, then she comes out, joins me to go into the kitchen, get fed. It's just and very calm. But those eyes the minute I see them, every day, still two years later, every day she looks at me. My heart melts, and I'm thinking, what kind of a monster? And I do, I write hard for a living, and I cannot imagine the type of person you must be to do something to a dog like that. Yeah, exactly. To do something like that to any animal who can't defend itself. You know, it's just... Ugh. Could you could you possibly... Like, are you... Because like, I know me, personally, I'm so much of an animal lover, I couldn't even write something bad happening to an animal, much less a dog, would you be able to do something like that or no? I'm pretty sure I could in the context, uh, like if it was a story that needed it for Mm -hmm. illustrative purposes, 
I don't know if I could go into graphic detail about it because I wouldn't want to imagine that. Yeah, exactly. Which is always weird, though, when someone says that because you're like, oh, but you can go into graphic detail about somebody caving some person's head in with something. Yeah. It's, it's not that, though. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of subscribed to Jack Ketchum's theory that there should be nothing off limits for you to write about. Mm-hmm. But a big thing is how it's dealt with. Exactly. You know, I'm much, I'm more okay with the idea of uh, an investigator opening an outhouse door and finding charred corpses of dogs in there than I am about the scene in which the guy chars the fucking dogs, like, you know? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's so many different ways of doing it. There's, there's, I, I don't want to say what book it is, just in case people haven't read it or, or even you haven't read it, but there was, there's a dog throughout the entire book who just pops in and out and... He's con- they're constantly described as just being a beautiful dog, this and that, very loyal and whatnot. And then towards the end, there's just a very long, drawn-out death scene for that dog. And just, oh, no. I like the. I really love the book. The book is really good, but I just had such a hard time reading that book. It's just talking about, like, as it's dying, it's just looking at the owner and everything. I'm just like, good God, this has been going on for like five pages. Can we just end it already? It sounds, it sounds very familiar. I will say, though, and this is always like, I find it fascinating um, to discuss things like this because I've always wondered if there's a line that I won't cross. Mm-hmm. And I do. I still haven't figured that out. There's certain things I don't want to write about. There are certain things that I probably wouldn't write about because I just why you know but then again i don't know what the next story is going to be about i don't know what it's going to require to have maximum impact and i I don't think i would shy away from something that the story needed yeah definitely by that that same token then you know when people say i won't read that book with that in it that's fine that's a personal choice but you do know the genre we're, we're dealing with here right and books like that tend to get you by taking away the things that you love. I mean, that is horror in itself in or outside of literature. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, And I don't think that we as writers should shy away from putting you through that. I mean, look at Hereditary, for example, without spoiling anything. I mean, Jesus, people are getting beaten down until there's nothing but dust left. Mm-hmm. Metaphorically, spiritually, mentally. But you can't achieve that kind of an impact without going places most people are not comfortable going. Oh, yeah. Or you, you end up with homogenized horror, and I, I will fight to death to avoid having that be the standard. If you get to the point where you're like, you know, no, this people, like, I can take this, but other people probably can't, it's like, well, then, guess, now you're watering it down to please them. Just don't read it. You know? yeah, exactly. If it's, it's, like, if it's going to offend you, just don't read it. Simple as that. It's, this offends me. Okay, well then I will change everything about what I do and base all my decisions on what I write on the fact that you might be offended by it. I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. Exactly. I mean, we can't all have Gene Kuntz's Jesus dogs going through the world either, you know? <laughs> I've, I've only read like two or, th- I think two of his books, and but from what I understand, he is a huge dog lover and always has dogs in his book or something. Yeah, and you know what? That's okay, too. The guy loved dogs. He always had his dogs be... Not always. Some of his early stuff he didn't. And I've loved a lot of his early stuff. But I kind of went off 
every book having some kind of a genius superhuman magic dog in it because I know that he had a great attachment to his dog and he lost his dog and it was devastating for him and he got a new one and that's fine and but the same thing applies just because I don't want to read about Jesus dogs doesn't mean that he has to stop writing about him yeah exactly He's a huge success. Maybe we should all be writing about Magic Jesus dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously there's a a penchant for animal lovers out there, so why not? Yeah, he even had the dog write a book. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, well, obviously not the dog, because it wasn't written by the dog. But, yeah. I mean, he has a dog with the dog's name as the author, because it's a, I think it's a, a children's dog book. Oh, okay, okay. Something like that. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. I think it's a charming thing to do, but the mockery he got as a result from people who are so much better than children's <laughs> dogs. Like, it changes your life in what way exactly for you not to read this or for it to be out there. Exactly. I honestly do believe that Shakespeare was right when he said, shut the fuck up. It's <laughs> <laughs> an actual quote. That's a, yeah, I think it's from Hamlet. <laughs> And Hamlet said, shut the fuck up. Yeah, alas, Yarek, <laughs> would you fucking shut up? <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're nearing the two-hour mark. That flew by. Um, Jesus Christ, Lonesome Dove was shorter than this. Yeah, no shit, right? Um, well, before we, before, or actually before I let you go, I was wondering if you would maybe want to do a quick little tiny game of Desert Island. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm well. Just, it's not that I don't, that I mind these, it's just that I'm not good at them. But go on anyway. Yeah, that's, it's it's always fun just because, like I said, you know, you could ask me what my favorite Dark Tower novels are, I'll tell you right now, and then yeah. two hours later ask me again, it's going to be different. So that's why I like it is because pretty much every time someone asks, you will more or less have different answers. So let's do, um, but I guess we'll just do three. Um, yeah, top three, rather. Or it doesn't have to be in any order, just three. Um, so let's do... Uh, Desert Island movies. Movies. Oh my god. Um. Movies. Ooh, Sunset Boulevard. Alright, there you go. That's a good one. Let's see. I mean, I always say I think my favorite, uh, I, I, my, my, like my top three movies I should say my top five movies will always change, but my number one is always the same, and that's Pulp Fiction. Oh, good one. Yeah, that's yeah, that's. It's just I don't know. You can't beat it. Plus, it's an anthology, so you get the feel of a bunch of different movies instead of just one. Yeah, and it's and it like any Quentin Tarantino movie, it's almost three hours long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how about Desert Island uh, book? Actually, funny enough, I mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, Lonesome Dove. All right, there you go. That's it's a pretty thick one, isn't it? Oh yeah. Okay. It's like the stand. Oh horses. god. Yeah. Um. All right, and last, let's see. Uh, I was gonna say Desert Island album. Maybe we should just, if if you can think of an album, all right. Maybe just artist, if anything. Agnes Obel. Agnes Obel. Yeah. All I'm right. More, uh, I'm like the kind of. Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains would be my go-to, but I her music just haunts me. All oh, right. I'm actually hoping to go see her in September in Detroit. Oh, right on. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that that'll about do it then. <laughs>
Um, I guess if uh, do you want to um, plug anything, any works? I know you said you're working on one, or do you want to plug a website, your Instagram? No. All right. <laughs> I'll link it all in the below. It's it's too much work yeah, to talk I, about it. I can never remember the places I am, and I figure if anybody wants to know badly enough, they'll be able to find me. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, uh, you know, this is a country of what two, three hundred million people. How many of them have? The same three names you do. Yeah, or the level of cool. Exactly. That's why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for doing this, sir. I really, really appreciate it. And I know uh, I've been, I've got great feedback from people telling me this is a great first uh, interview for me to do in life and for the podcast. Well, and if I can tell you, it doesn't, uh, it didn't at all feel like it was your first interview because. I get interviewed by people who it's clear that it is because they don't know what to ask. I was so afraid of that. I thought, you know, afterwards you're going to hang up and be like, this fucking guy did not research anything or do anything. You know what? The best interviews are always the ones exactly like you have done it here where it is just basically a conversation. It's two people sitting at a table talking to each other and not stilted and where do you get your ideas? Yeah, see, and that's... Like I said, when I wrote down my questions, I was like, I want these more as a guideline. If we if we come to them organically, okay. If you know, if you know, we come to the end of something, I'll I'll ask it, and off we go again. You know. Yeah. Interviewers take note. This is how it's done. Ah, awesome. Well, I really hope to maybe have you on again in the future sometime, and we can maybe not do two hours. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can do three. That that'll be fine. There you go. Yeah, we'll, we'll just make this the podcast every week. It's, you know, previously on. Yeah, exactly. Here's the two hour previously on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Well, you have a great rest of your day. You too, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, definitely. All right. Bye. See ya.